Welcome to MediaPath. I'm Louise Palanker. And I'm Fritz Coleman. We've got quite a show for you. Our guest has become our friend, which puts us in company with Frank Sinatra, Bing Crosby, Ricky Nelson, Louis Armstrong, Leonard Nimoy, and the Mills Brothers. We are FOBB, Friends of Bruce Bellin, the boy singer, <laughs> architect of the first boy band. Bruce has written a wildly entertaining book called Icons, Idols, and Idiots of Hollywood, My Adventures in America's First Boy Band. Bruce is right here with us, but before we let him charm and delight you, Fritz and I have a couple of recommendations, and uh, Fritz has also some some really fun stuff to share with you right now. Yes, I'm going to take a couple of moments for some shameless self-promotion. Yeah. It makes us very happy when we get to relay some good news about our show, and we're sure everyone listening loves to share in our joy. So today we want to read a few recent reviews we received on Apple Podcasts from Gabby 999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999
point of view of Leo's character. The book, however, is centered on the FBI agent's perception. The agent in the film is played by Jesse Plemons. He's good, too. You need to hydrate and be well-fed before you see this movie. It's three and a half hours long. They could have whacked an hour out of this easily. But like the American Buffalo that I talked about last week, it's the stark evidence of how the white man decimated not only the culture of the indigenous people, but also decimated their wealth and resources as well. It's a spectacular movie. It's controversial. The reviews are mixed. But I I loved it. I thought it, it was really a great learning process for me. Well, I will definitely be... Check it out. Yeah, I think it's coming soon to Prime, and then you can yes, press pause mm-hmm. and go to the bathroom, <laughs> cry a little, come back. Good point. All right, Fritz, I found a crazy-ass doc series on Prime called Desperately Seeking Soulmate, colon, Escaping Twin Flames Universe. It's about an online cult. How does a cult leader control minds virtually? Through the promise of love, a specific love, your deepest crush. Imagine if you were hopelessly in love with someone who did not return your feelings, and rather than telling you the difficult truth that it was time for you to move on, your best friend kept insisting that he really does love you and you just need to try harder. A vulnerable person hearing what they want to hear rather than what they need to hear will become addicted to your message. You know what I'm talking about? I'm Mm -hmm. here. I hear you. (laughs) And pay you lots of money to continue receiving it. Now, full disclosure, when I was a teenager in search of evidence that my crush might like me too, I would wander into bookshelves and bookstores and investigate our astrological compatibility or take a Cosmo quiz. (laughs) Eventually, reality sets in. I don't even actually know Robert Redford. But we humans do search for hope, right? Well, Now you can desperately seek crush affirmation clues online, which may lead you to the concept of twin flames. It's like a soulmate, but you are destined to be together across lifetimes. And monopolizing this concept is a couple who call themselves Jeff and Shalaya Divine. They are, yeah, you know that's their real name. Red flag number one. (laughs) Is their last name Divine? I'll take two steps back. They are a charming guru-type couple who started a Facebook group called Twin Flames Universe, and after joining, you are quickly inspired to pay hundreds of dollars in order to hear from them that you should continue pursuing your crush. In fact, why not dial it up to stalking? This, (laughs) This encouragement results in folks being virtually blocked by their crush, restraining orders, police visits, etc. If it's still not working, spend more money to be scolded by Jeff and Shalea, who are now in complete control of your hopes, fears, and actions. Journalist Alice Hines dove into the world of Twin Flames universe, even spending time at Jeff and Shalea's Michigan compound. She talks with former participants who describe the extreme lengths they were encouraged to take to claim their one twin flame. And just when you think this doc is sufficiently disturbing, it takes a dark turn. Jeff and Shalea's advice is logically not working. There are no happy twin flame couples to show for all of the arduous coursework. And so the cult leaders share the good news that they have been divinely inspired to match people. Well, the hiccup being that the group is 80% women. And so Jeff and Shalea start coercing members to switch genders and change their names. (laughs) Oh, yeah. It gets that nutty. The universe instructs me that your name is not Anne, it's Dan. Oh, that's funny. Hope you're good with that. You know, if and, they don't have any Yelp reviews, that's a bad sign. <laughs> this is not a good business. And quite creepily, all of the Twin Flame Universe coursework and videos exist online, and it's used liberally throughout the doc. It's called Desperately Seeking Soulmate, Escaping Twin Flames Universe. It's on Prime. You're going to need to call me afterwards. Please. It's 
You know, there are a couple of docs like this. Uh, did you and I talk about the one where there was this quite beautiful female chef restaurant owner in New oh, York? Oh, yeah. And some guy that she never met before just said the right thing to her on Twitter, and she started sending him her life You know savings. what that right thing was? I will make your dog eternal. Oh, no, that's true. That's exactly what happened. Yeah. So when you say what people need to hear, they're yours. Crazy. So that I think the key to life is like being a little, having a healthy amount of skepticism and saying, all right, I know I want that to be true, but like, is it really true? Am I right, Bruce? Get the lead tenor. Oh, I should probably get the lead tenor. Okay. (laughs) Our guest is a Renaissance boy singer who has been charming audiences since the age of four. He blossomed into an entertainer, actor, songwriter, recording and concert artist, screenwriter, actor, director, public speaker, playwright, producer, radio host, humorist, and now author. Take a deep breath. That's your life. (laughs) I can't hold the job. (laughs) I can't hold the job. Bruce's brand new brilliant book is called Icons, Idols, and Idiots of Hollywood, My Adventures in America's First Boy Band. Now, your book is gloriously entertaining, and the lessons are many. Your happiness and success recipe is do what you love, work for it, keep a good nature, and a willingness to learn. Wow. First of all, I'm thrilled to be here. Uh, this is a wonderful show. Um, those, those views, I got to listen to all of them and follow. I'm thrilled to be here. And thank you very much and for We're taking so time to, to read the you. book with all the things you're about, you two. Uh, I forgot the question. What was the... the question is about the one, the thread that I took away is that you're, you, you're always teaching us to be lifelong learners. You know, uh, it's funny. I was saying to my friend who drove me over here today, when I was 11 or 12, and I started to write poems and stuff for my father's church services when I was four or five. And when I was 11 or 12, I guess it was my dad. It was a great influence on me. He was a very learned man. He gave me a book by Mark Twain in which Mark Twain said, be an observer. Observe. Watch. What's the wallpaper like? What kind of shoes did he have on? What was the first word out of his mouth? What was the weather like that day? I guess as 11 or 12, it got planted in me. Plus, my father was an innately curious man. He had degrees in several specialties. My mom was a joie de vivre lady who loved the arts. So, you know, and I, the thing I'm proudest of that when people read the book is, wow, you guys really worked. You got together at midnight every night and worked. And, yeah, I think that was in my DNA from the start. My dad said, you know, nothing comes easy, and if it does, it's going to ruin you. So you got to work for it. Mm. <laughs> well, I, I mean, I've always known you're entertaining. You... you concocted most of the great comedy bits between the songs, which became your signature stuff. But then I read about how funny your parents were. Your father was not supposed to be funny. He's a preacher. <laughs> but your mom, but both he and your mom were, were, had this skill called well, I, that I call wry sarcasm, which I just love. And they were really amusing people. So I see where you got it. Well, you know, it, it, it had an influence on me. I mean, the dinner table, we bantered every night. I had an older brother who was everybody's articulate. And uh, my father loved puns and word plays. Word plays. He was a highly educated man. Uh, he had, as I said, several degrees. He did the, the, the morning a crossword puzzle in the Chicago Tribune in Fountain Pen in about five minutes. And my mom was just a 
fun lover. I mean, she was a flapper when they met. He was a serious kind of uptight uh, seminary student studying for the ministry, and she was this kind of semi-jazz gospel singer, and her joie de vivre and her puckishness, she had a great edgy sense of humor. I said in the book, you know, she, she could put Gracie Allen to shame. They were really funny. Uh, so the two of them, we were, I'm making that obvious now, I'm sure, a very verbal family. And she is where the music came from, right? Because she did three-part harmony gospel harmony in your father's church or your father's uh, radio show radio show in the senior year at his seminary my father was host of a sunday night show on which my mother's trio sang she was the lead singer of the trio she called them the born again andrew sisters (laughs) (laughs) and i got i learned a lot of harmony from that of course i grew up on the mills brothers which is three-part harmony yeah, I'm honored sure. to say a friend of John Mills, the son of Donald Mills, is, is here today. Thank That's you for arranging that. such a great surprise. We have a huge studio audience today for us. We have three gentlemen, <laughs> one of whom we've already put to sleep. But we, maybe a few more dance numbers would do it. But uh, what I love about the lesson that you took, I mean, we can all be taught, but we take away whatever is meaningful to us. And as a young kid, you're delivering papers to Gene Kelly, and he gave you a lesson, but not only did you take away the lesson, you took away the way he dispelled the lesson. He was inclusive. He said, how could we do better? And that you remember that is, is what, I re- what really resonated with me. Tell that story. Wow. Thank you, Weezy, for uh, for these questions are wonderful. We can just talk about your paper route, but we don't have time. (laughs) You had every famous person in Hollywood. When I was 13 or 14, I got a paper route delivering the Hollywood Citizen News, which at the time was kind of a daily version of a newspaper based on variety and report. It was Mm -hmm. mostly showbiz stuff. And I delivered to Lucille Ball and Jimmy Stewart and Jaja Gabor and Harpo Marx and Ira Gershwin. And one day a gentleman came out of his house on Rodeo Drive where I used to throw the newspaper under the bush every day. And he said, may I talk to you for a moment? He came over and he said, oh, hi, I, what's your name? I said, Bruce. He said, Bruce, I'm Gene. And I shook his hand. He said, would you mind showing me how you, uh, how you fold and throw that newspaper? Well, I'm a 14-year-old kid, right away, macho. I think this is a challenge. So I put it together and put it and fold it and fold it and fold it, rubber band and throw it. Of course, it goes end over end, plonks on one end, smushes <laughs> the end, and goes into the oleander bush. <laughs> Gene says, Do you, I, think we, I think we, I think we can do better than that. We have a problem because uh, when I pick the paper up and open it, it's got a big smush spot in the middle and it's three creases across the title. But, you know, I, do you mind if we try and solve this problem? I said, no. I said, who, the, who the hell is this guy, a rich guy, and he's worried about how I fold my newspaper? <laughs> he said, give me a newspaper. I gave it to me for a little rope, not three times, but twice. Made it flatter and wider. And of course, it would cut the air better than tumbling over and over. Like oh the my God! Though. Gene Kelly invented the frisbee. It's funny you should say that because Gene and I talked about it later <laughs> in life. Part of being, uh, anyhow, he put a rubber band around. He said, "Keep your list very loose and throw it back in. Don't throw it. Do this. Mm-hmm. Watch this." And he threw it, and it landed about a foot from his front door. And of course, uh, I couldn't resist. I grabbed one and threw it the same way and threw it, and it was closer. It wasn't great, but it was getting better. And I said, "Thank you so much." He said, "I think we, I think we solved it. I think we, I think we got it worked out." Shook, wow. shook hands, jumped over the hedge, and as he headed back behind the crane, cranberry door. I remember his house had a cranberry colored door. It was a white colonial. I realized it was Gene Kelly. 
Wow. And, and I thought on the way home on my bicycle, because the great thing about delivering in Beverly Hills was West Hollywood was downhill. So most of the ride home was down when I could contemplate all that's happened in my delivery day, including Gene Kelly. And I got home and told the story at dinner. My mom was flabbergasted. My dad really couldn't have cared less. <laughs> but it showed me how the most banal, everyday circumstance for certain mentalities, for people of a certain ilk, it's a challenge. Wow, what a fun, I, you know, something I bet. And he had aer- aerodynamic principles, how he folded. He had, you know, acrobatic. So uh, I was- Let's talk about the, uh, the way he treated people yeah. as well. I heard that choreographing and stuff, he could be a taskmaster, but he probably had a lovely way of getting people to do what Not he wanted Not a shred of ego and that collaborative, here's how they think we should do. We, mm-hmm. I just met you. What do you mean we? You know, <laughs> suddenly we're working together on something. <laughs> wow. <laughs> It's inclusive. It's inclusivity, and that's just how. And he he he, he didn't. He came across the hedge to me. Mm-hmm. He didn't say, "Come here, come here, get over here." What the hell is my news? He's hey, we got a problem, you know. So I I'm like belaboring the point, but you get it, and thank you for noticing that. Yeah, in the book. I, just, I just loved it. You learned a lot of lessons from a couple other people. Should we move on, Fritz, or did you? I have... just want to ask him one more question, since we're on the paper route chapter yeah. of his life. It was Jimmy Durante. Well, your encounter with him. I mean, it wasn't spectacular, but you because his his whole act was a very everyman quality, like exactly. a guy you'd meet in a bar. Exactly. And and he just came off that way, and he came off that way to you when you met him on your paper route. Well, yeah, I mean, knew him about five minutes. I wanted to put my arms around him and hug him. You know, I, <laughs> I knew his reputation, how beloved he was. I mean, there's legends in the business about friends and former partners of his that he supported till their dying day and never mentioned a word. He was a wonderful human being. And I was delivering newspapers one day and I was at the top of his driveway about to throw his paper when the door opened and he came shuffling out in, in tattered slippers and an old faded flannel robe. Ex- and what hair he had was kind of down. You know, and he looked at me and he was curious for me. He stopped and he realized who I was, the paper boy. He was going down to put some mail in the mailbox. And he came over. I had just won a brand new bicycle. I sold the most subscriptions in a month for the Hollywood Citizen News. And it was lying on the ground. It was metallic wine colored. Mm. And he kept talking about my bicycle. He said, look at that bicycle. <laughs> I mean, I knew it was legend. And he was living up to it. And somehow his disheveled look, his kind of slumbery you know, demeanor made it even more attractive. I said, now I know everybody loves this guy. And it was about my third day on the paper route. And riding home that night, I thought, if they fire me tomorrow, I got my life's worth out of that meeting Jimmy Durante and Jim Gene Kelly. I mean, that's the thing about this book. I mean, every page is chock full of these either brief or career-long encounters you have with famous people. <laughs> and very so, funny. Very yeah. funny. Thank it's you. written in, in Bruce's voice with help from our friend Robert Morgan Fisher. Shout out. He worked with me at Premiere. It's in your voice, so it's very conversational. It's very it's very warm and dear. And And what I take away is... People like teaching people who are open to learning. And you were always really accessible. And that's why I think Ozzie Nelson really took to you and, and had you back and kept asking for Bruce because you were, you were a boy singer. But he wanted you on the set because you were watching. He, you were listening. You were Plus you were funny. He trusted you, you were, with comedy yeah. gigs, even external of the group, right? Yeah, and you know, I always, as I said in the book, I always gave credit to the other three guys. They were real okay with it. I mean, by the second and third appearance of the group on the show, he was giving me funny lines and shtick to do, but that's what we did in the prep sack. That was the cut-up. I was the comic. And, you know, part of what Ozzy's 
confided in me later on was Rick was rather a low-energy performer. Mm-hmm. He'd come in and say, wow, wow, the dean is here. What are we going to do? Where I'd come and say, wow, wow, the dean is here. What are we going to do? You know, <laughs> <laughs> And the people at home are saying, gee, you know, Rick's got more expression in his face these days. And anyhow, I, I, I guess so, and I, I wasn't afraid to ask questions. I mean, I think as part of being raised by a, a, a learned man like my father, he wanted, to, he wanted to know I was curious about stuff. So I would ask Ozzy stuff, and years later, I think I do mention it in the book, uh, when I was an executive at NBC and I heard Ozzy was – was terminally ill, I wrote him a note and thanked him for all he had taught me. And of course, back came a response from Ozzy that is one of my most treasured possessions is on the wall of my den saying he thought of me as family and he's glad he could teach me something I'd carry on later in life. So it was a great experience working with him and he was an incredible, he and George Burns were probably my primary influences. And that was the next guy I was going to get to. Was... <laughs> let, me, let me ask, let me ask a, uh, a can I ask a Ozzy Nelson story? Oh yeah, please. There's a, there, it's like a two-line story and that showed the power of the Nelsons during the peak of their television, you know, popularity was you had to get some permission to do something. It was either performed the first time and, and uh, Ozzy was able to make a phone call and, and pave the way for you to make that happen. Am Absolutely. I- it happened time and again. In fact, when, when Ricky called me and said, would you like to be on the show, the preps? We had just signed a recording contract, has said Ricky, so we were all new at the business. We said, yeah, of course. The only problem was we were supposed to report Monday. This was like Thursday, and we weren't in the union. It takes about six oh, months. Okay. Well, you know, Ozzy Nelson, we got our our SAG card about uh, two hours later, hand-delivered by messenger, oh, wow. and we were in the guild the next thing we knew. And it's my lifelong uh, membership that I'm proudest of, the Screen Actors Guild. I joined it when I was 18. <laughs> wow. Was he allowed to tell us a story? He's on strike. <laughs> That's right. I don't see you out there with a sign. So picking. George Burns is another guy that really n- noticed you and wanted to really, you know, take what you had, which was gold. And, and that was, I think, fun for him to find a kid who's good and make him a little bit better. Yeah, you know, second or third night on Vegas, we finally got our Vegas breakthrough long in our, into our career, which is one of our aspirations they hadn't realized yet. But then we got uh, work in Vegas with Burns, and I think it was the first or second night when I came off stage, he said, kid. Of course, he called everybody kid. He said because he couldn't remember anybody's name. Everybody was kid, kid, come here, we'll talk to you. And he, he put his arm around me and kind of walked me over in the corner. He said, you really like it out there, don't you? I said, oh, God, are you kidding? I love it. I love it. I'm listening to the crowd. Are you kidding? He said, okay. He says, you know, you found part of the secret of, of being happy is, is finding what you love to do. No, the other half, get him to pay you for it. And he walked away. And that was the first of many, many, many platitudes that he laid on me that inspired me. Uh, he taught me comic timing. He would take me backstage in his dressing room after a show in Vegas and say, that bit you do with the tall guy? Will you fall back and faint in a swoon? Wait two more beats before you do it. I said, well, I've been doing it since high school. I know where the, I know where the laugh is. One beat and I fall. He said, try two beats. Well, the next night we went out and he said, got to one beat. And that's where I usually fall and I'm going to lose the crowd. I got the second beat and fell. And the crowd laughed so loud I couldn't hear the it's band good. for the rest of the song. <laughs> and I went off stage and I said, George, because he was on stage watching in the curtains every minute of every show, the dance number, everything. I said, did you, did you, did you hear? He said, Three, and walked three. away. It, 
If you if you're listening to the podcast, Bruce held up three fingers. Did you do three fingers the next show? We tried three fingers. We were about to try three fingers because our manager was in the dressing room, and I repeated what George had said. He said, "You better do it. He'll be in the he'll be in the wings counting. You know that. And maybe you haven't known, but he's been in the business a long time. <laughs> number one, he may be right, <laughs> and number two. He signs your checks, Hello. and he's going to be watching. And as I headed to the stage, and I, George said, two, two, don't do three, two. What's interesting is he gave it so much thought. I mean, he really, you know. He couldn't help himself. No. I mean, he would get there early and stand on the wings, and he would watch how the maitre d' seated the people that were going to be his audience in 45 minutes. He said, I want him in a good mood. The lady at the ringside table doesn't like her steak. That makes it tougher on me. I want everything to be right. So, uh, you know, he was the consummate showman. Come on, it's all he did. He's five years old. He was in the Pee Wee Quartet. And he said, which is another reason I love him, he said, I never worked a day in my life. <laughs> That's how you live to be 100. I, I saw him uh, at the Melody Fair Ooh. Summer Buffalo, they, you know, they on the East Coast, you probably worked these things. Did you ever work the Valley Forge Music Fair or the oh, Melody yeah. Fair? Yeah. Oh, yeah, They were yeah. these summer things in these gorgeous tents that looked like Cirque du Soleil tents. And the first time I saw George Carlin was in one of those, and it was a religious <laughs> experience. And But but uh, I saw at the Melody Fair, I saw Sammy Davis and George Burns in a co-headlining situation. And my God, he, he stood up there for an hour didn't miss a beat and the guy was in his mid 90s by that time oh yeah oh yeah and it was just it was an astonishing lesson in show business well one one more story about him and what's funny uh the second or third night i did an ad lib glenn said something the mc of our group did said something and i as i often did did a wisecrack and it got an enormous laugh I remember coming off stage with Glenn and said, that, did, did you hear that laugh? He said, yeah. I said, we tried it again the next night and they laughed again. We came off stage and said, it was such a non sequitur, it made no sense. It was a buzz. It was something about milking a goat or something. I don't know, it was some dumb line I said and they, they roared. So now we've done it two nights in a row and they've laughed both nights. We're off stage and Glenn says, they just not. George comes over and says, what? What's the problem? What's the problem? I said, blah, 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 line we had lived last night. They laughed. He said, yeah, and you did it again tonight. And I said, yeah. And he said, and they laughed. And I said, yeah. And he said, that means it's funny. <laughs> right, then do it. It's in the act, but it works twice. Leave it yeah, in. yeah. So, the audience knows more than you. So many people have said that you guys were an influence on their music, and nobody sings your praises more than Brian Wilson did. He even wrote about it. Loved those early tight harmonies he would listen to, and the Beach Boys fashioned their style after that. I mean, even people like Jimmy Buffett, people that loved your music. Going back from there, who were the people that did that to you when you were young? Who, who were your heroes? Well, it started out with Bing Crosby and the Mills Brothers. Uh, my dad was going, as most dads were during the war. My mom played, till then. I mean, it wasn't a day went by that I didn't hear it. And their harmony, I, I rhapsodized un, unashamedly in the book for several pages about what it influenced the Mills, the greatest natural vocal group ever to exist. Of course, during the 50s, the fours were all the race, so the four lads, the four races. And then along came the four freshmen which Brian Wilson will tell you, revolutionized harmony singing in a male group forever. Why is that? Well, they put, they put very tight harmony. They, they went one night while they were in a music conservatory to hear Stan Kenton's band. And if you remember Stan Kenton's sound, the trombones, the very, very lusty trombone sound was very tight-packed, 
forceful, powerful sound. And the freshman said, we want to sing like that vocally. We want to put melody on top and do the, I mean, nobody had done harmony like that. And uh, Brian, and I know the freshman, I got to know him later in life, Brian, Brian said unashamedly, I idolized them. I mean, the first song they sang on television, the Andy Williams show, was before a freshman arrangement of Their Hearts Were Full of Spring. So they were an enormous influence, the freshmen. Uh, as far as single artists, I love Sammy Davis because he did it all. He did impressions, he danced, he sang, he played the drums, and Bobby Darren. Bobby Darren, I saw Bobby Darren in Florida, and we were at the top of our career, so we were hot stuff, but boy. He blew me away. I mean, he did a drum solo, he did impressions, he sat at the piano and sang a ballad. So there were a lot of people that influenced me from the ground up, uh, you know, going through uh, life in Hollywood, if you will. Yeah, you wanted to be a showman, which means be multifaceted, entertain. That's and what the we first were determined time, to do, yeah. And we the were... first time you were described as entertainers, you thought that was the highest compliment you could receive. Oh, yeah. We, we got a picture in Life magazine, and it said they brighten their act with clowning. And I thought, okay, yeah. We were determined we are going to do as much comedy as music, and thankfully, later in our career, we got known to some people mainly for the Impressions satirical records that we did, Kitty and the D out on the Belmonts and the Platters and the Fleetwoods. And so we, from the beginning, we, well, first of all, look, on stage, I'm 5'6", Ed's 6'5". We got comedy right away, whether you want it or not. So we might as well have some fun with it. Plus, you know, I'm a ham bone. So uh, yeah, it was it was an honor for Life magazine to, to call us that. And before we even had a hit, our agents got us booked at the Coconut Grove a year after we attended there as high school prom goers. Oh. We're at now on the stage at the Coconut Grove opening for Edgar Bergen. And the review in the Herald Examiner the next day said, these guys are going to make it. They've got great blends, powerful voices, and, and, a f and fetching personalities. I think so, the, 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 uh, the sweet spot in the 50s was being a nightclub act. Absolutely. And, and, you, and you had a, not everybody, you know, had a ton of comedy, but I, you know, I just, I listened to the Smothers Brothers at the Purple Onion just uh, relentlessly. Uh. And so to me, when they sang, you know, they didn't have great voices, but they knew and understood harmony and yeah. they respected each song. But the comedy and their personalities that came out in between songs was what makes you fall in love with them. Yeah. You know, that's a, an important question. You either got or you don't. The audience has got to like you, especially if you're funny. They better like you if you're obnoxious and funny. It's, uh, it's, it's one of the interesting aspects of the business, what personalities work with the public and on stage. And, and interestingly enough, some of them on stage are totally diametrically opposite to what they are off stage. It's one of the interesting phenomenons of uh, performing. You, uh, you were not rebellious and threatening to adults. Your band was very clean cut. You had lovely suits and the white bucks, and you just looked like every parent's dream, which brings up a story. <laughs> the first album my mother ever bought me was the Kingston Trio. I don't know that she ever heard a Kingston Trio's fan, uh, song. And I, I opened this, and here's the Kingston Trio. To me, it was a big deal. I said, what made you get me this? He said, well, they were dressed so nicely on the album cover. <laughs> and I thought, well... Thanks for that. So they kind of sold their act. But you guys were very clean cut, very 50s and early 60s. We were called milk fed. We were called clean cut. The Hollywood high image didn't hurt. 
But uh, yeah, that 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 was the way we were described, and it in a way kind of bought me a little bit of license from my father, who wasn't thrilled as a minister of me going in the evil show business. But the fact that every article he read, these colors milk fed and clean cut, and the Pat Boons of Woe groups, and all that, and you know, and interesting because later when we became hits on the college concert state, we got. I mean, we did blue material, we did politically, you know, charged material and stuff. But yeah, we were uh, clean cut, clean cut, clean cut. Yeah. Who wrote that stuff? You and Glenn wrote, wrote Yeah, Glenn that. and I wrote it. Glenn Larson, yeah. Yeah, he was an amazing guy. I, you know, I should take a minute, because he's a co-star, if you will, of the book, and talk about Glenn Larson, who went on to create Battlestar Galactica and Knight Rider and, and so many Magnum P.I. He wanted to be a, be a producer from the time he was 8 or 9 or 10 years old. He used to act out scripts in his garage. But when I met him at Hollywood High and we formed the four preps, and then we locked in with Ed Cobb, who would go on you know, to be in the rock and roll, you know, hierarchy, if you will. And so, and, and Marv, who was an orphan being raised by his, believe it or not, his disabled grandmother, we were all from blue-collar working-class community. So, you know, it was uh, it was a, cha- a way to, to, to work our way up, and it was a great challenge, and we just took for granted we were going to make it. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to just read a passage from your book because this is just how Bruce writes. In 1957, you are cast to ride the the spanking new Matterhorn with America's dream girl, Annette Funicello. The problem being that you live in deathly fear of roller coasters, and you write the following. As we approach the top of the track, I look down several hundred feet to the gawking crowd below and hope that none of my random body parts rain down on the innocent bystanders and ruin their visit to the happiest place on earth. (laughs) Tell us more about that day. Oh, well, I got cast to play her date, which in itself is uh, interesting. Paul Giamatti gets cast with and Jeff Funicello. What do you mean? You're adorable. Well, I was convinced they'd pick a big studly, because when I went to the audition, the room was full of these stud surfer types. And the, I'm going to pick one. Ozzy sent me over. I said, Ozzy, give me a break. Well, I'm well, lo and behold, I got it. They wanted a character type. So They you know. wanted someone expressive. Okay. Okay, that's fair Go enough. Ahead. Boy, did I get expressive. <laughs> oh, yeah, we climbed up that Matterhorn, and it wasn't open to the public yet, which meant theoretically there could still be some problems. <laughs> there were. It got up to the top and it skipped off the track at the very top as we're about to plunge to our death. <laughs> and they came up and rescued us. And I'm trying to be glib and make all these James Bond remarks. In the meantime, I am absolutely terrified. <laughs> and Annette is holding my arm, and I can feel her hand is trembling. We're stuck at the top of the track. I mean, you can see. Were they the earth. filming this? Hmm? Were they filming this, or was this mm-hmm. just a, a yeah, yeah? Uh, how many times did you have to do? It? Oh no, we 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 didn't do it at all. We stopped and went back down, and they fixed it. And we came back and did it later. It was a brand new ride, and as I predicted, there was a problem with it. Well, of course, now we get down to the ground, and when I get nervous, as I was terrified, my my mouth gets dry. I need something <laughs> before we head over to shoot the next scene. I need something to wet my my lips. So God. Plus, there's a Welch's grape stand 10 feet away. I go, give me, hey, give me the 16 out and don't put any ice in it because I'm going to chuggle it. <laughs> so I take 16 inches of sweet, sticky grape juice and I down it. And the next ride we get on is the spinning teacups. <laughs> wow. And the director says, all right, Bruce, spin the hell out of it, man. We want some action here. 
We get about three spins out underway, and the camera says, "Cut!" <laughs> Someone's wrong with the little guy, and he's turning green. Little blonde guy, he's turning green. <laughs> and they stop. And I mean, how humiliating can you be? Not only do two prop guys come over to unbelt me and get me out, a nurse comes to to, to attend me. <laughs> Take his pulse. I waved her off, and I made it to the men's room before I lost all the grape juice. But wow, uh, that was my chance to woo. <laughs> Annette and uh, become Mr. Funicello, and I, I blew it big time. Yeah, she was she was smitten, I'm sure. So as, as you write in your book, your your group consists of a preacher's son, two Mormons, and a bashful jock. This sentence appears on the first page of a chapter you title, One Dead Junkie and a Masturbating Monkey. Ex- explain yourself. <laughs> Thanks a lot, Lucy. Uh-huh. Dad, <laughs> turn off, turn off. <laughs> no, no, it was hysterical. We- our, our manager from the start, he managed Les Paul and Mary Ford and a lot of other big acts, and he was absolutely violently against our ever doing what they call a laundry list act, which means there are five acts, they're all equally billed, they all do three songs. He said, no, no, you guys are headliners or nothing, at least Cohen, no, no, no. We finally talked him into it because the producer of this particular show convinced Jerry D. Lewis, Roy Hamilton, Bobby Helms, the silhouettes are going to boom. So... We talk him into letting us go. He said, yeah, "This is a mistake, but we four headstrong guys. We, you know, we got a hit, and so we talked him into it. We got on the bus to go up there before we realized none of the headliners went up by the bus. These were all the techies and the groupies and the junkies and everything. And the four of us in this buck on our first rock and roll all star <laughs> tour. Wee! And on the way up, the bus stopped at an emergency stop. The guy got out. The driver went over to phone booth, made a call, and a few minutes, paramedics came up." And came on the bus and hauled the dead guy out of the out of the latrine where he'd overdosed. Oh my God! And I, welcome to your first rock and roll all star tour. So yeah, we head up there, and uh, for some reason the headliners, the the uh, the silhouettes. This is a great story. I love this. Yeah, dip 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 dip. Boom 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 boom. Get a job. Shut it out. So they they were huge stars going to be on the show. For some, they got screwed up with transportation. They couldn't make it. They got a phone call at the last minute. They can't make it. So four guys in the band get together and learn the record backstage. Now, I think how? In the meantime, the producer of the show has gotten a telegram from the producer, from the the manager of the real silhouettes and say, you better not introduce anybody else to the silhouettes, buddy. I'll come after you for every penny you got. So the producers advertise the silhouettes. What's he going to do? So the MC goes out just before they're part of their show. We're all leaning for him. What's he Ladies and gentlemen, those get a job, boys. <laughs> <laughs> they came and dip, 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 dip. That was so <laughs> show business. <laughs> and as one of the greatest show business said, it's not what's true that counts, it's what they think is true. Perception is everything. But the monkey. But the monkey. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah that's oh, one of the guys that up. Did I leave that out? How yeah, yeah. Yeah, you left that you out, brought Bruce. it up, Wheezy. A <laughs> uh, monkey had a particularly entertaining evening. Well, one of the musicians traveled with a monkey in a cage, and it would sit on the stand off stage during the show and masturbate, pleasure itself in time to the music. His particular favorite was Great Balls of Fire, by the way. But, but uh, and it was, and, and if you looked at him for too long, he'd, he'd flip you the and he flip you off and then go back to his. Yeah, Can a monkey just sit here and masturbate? Come yeah, on, man. In time to the music. Yeah. It, it just seems like, like that would be a great way to make money somehow. Fritz, you're, you're twisted. No, you're no, no, because <laughs> what are the chances I find one that talented? But yeah. that, that is the moment a preacher's son says, I think I'm fine. I think, I, I think I've made it. I'm in show business. And we called our manager that night in, in total, I mean, you know, 
wiped out and said, "You got we, we can't go on the bus. We can't spend five more minutes." He was such a connected guy. The next morning, we're in Sacramento. We come outside their hotel, and there's a brand new eight passenger Plymouth station wagon. And for the rest of the trip, we ride behind the bus like big stars in our own car. <laughs> so we're following the bus, and we're coming down a snowy pass in Albuquerque, and the bus stops ahead of us, and Ed's driving. He puts on the brakes, and of course, it keeps going. It wipes out the whole front of us, our brand new station running, three days old. So for the rest of the tour, high and mighty all-stars, we got a rope tied around the hood to keep the hood from coming up till we can get it fixed. So it was a very humbling experience, the whole thing. Wasn't the beginning of that tour Sacramento or San Francisco, and that was the time that you had to tell your father yeah. that you were going to perform in God Help Everybody, a nightclub. And to your father, a nightclub is what he called a padded sewer. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. so tell me about asking his permission, because it's actually a very touching story. Well, thank you. Well, you know, he signed the capital contract when we were still in teens and needed our parents' signature. Reluctantly, it took him a couple of days for my mom to talk him into him. Boy, I never heard her give him hell the way she did that night and said, you got to sign this contract. He's worked for this. He deserves it. And he told him to believe in himself, and now he's got a chance. And so he signed it. And then, of course, when we did gigs around town, sang now and then at the Coconut Grove, no big problem. I'm in show business, but I'm home, and I'm a good boy. And then suddenly we get booked in San Francisco, Sin City, you know, in a nightclub. <laughs> well, yeah, I, I say we might as well have gone to a house of ill repute in Sodom and Gomorrah for as far as my father. So I had to go tell him because not only am I leaving town to go on the road professionally full time, I'm dropping out of UCLA. Mm-hmm where he taught for a while. So I had a meeting with him in his office in the sanctuary, and that was like entering, the, you know, the Vatican. His big door closed <laughs> behind me, and I came in, and suddenly I'm four years old again, you know, addressing my father in great fright. And I explained that I'm dropping out of school, and I, he, I could tell it was just killed him. He's a very proud guy, obviously, very, very charismatic and proud and carried himself well, but he just got a slumped and and you know I went on and on and I hit the sound of my voice I had it all rehearsed but to say it didn't sound right it wasn't helping but you know he he cheered up and finally came over and and hugged me and uh said good luck and take God with you and take I God with you I thought door. that was so touching mm-hmm. because you had the same relationship with your father about I'm I'm a big blues fan, and I've read so many biographies of these blues guys, and they had this come to Jesus, for lack of a better term, moment with their father when they they say, you can't do that. That's the devil's music, and we're going to disown you. Never come back to this house. And your father was sort of in that camp, but you and your your talent and your drive won out over that, and it was very touching when he finally said, go ahead. Yeah, it was. You know, and and as I I said, I think part of what, what saved me in my relationship with him was the fact that our reputation was what it was and I know when we made the later more adult oriented albums he was not thrilled in fact one or two of them he refused to play and let me know he was very unhappy with some of the language but uh, you know I, I think above everything else my dad was about believing in yourself and going after what you want. And uh, so the fact that I did it, it, despite sometimes what he wanted for me, uh, I think brought him satisfaction in another way. And I, I'm thankful for that. I think, you know, what he saw was you taking a lot of his teachings into what you did. Yeah. And there's a point where a child is 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 their own person. You hope you've given them 18 years of values mm. and what what matters and that they'll take that into whatever drives them. And I want to talk for a moment about 
the Edsel show because <laughs> yeah. this is a piece of history that did nothing for the Edsel, <laughs> but did so much for YouTube. Couldn't help it. It did so much for YouTube because here's the thing. It's billed now on YouTube as the oldest videotape recording in existence. Oh, my goodness. Because it was mostly kinescopes where someone That's would right. take a movie of, of a live broadcast, but this was someone found in an attic. I don't know if you looked this up on YouTube. Someone, no. I looked it up because you were talking about it in your book, so I'm like, let me find this. So it's billed as the very first, it was sitting on a shelf somewhere and some guy dusted it off and put it up on YouTube side by side with the kinescope so you can see how much better the quality is of the videotape. It's from 1957, it's the Etzel Show. It stars Bing Crosby, Frank Sinatra, Louis Armstrong, Rosemary Clooney, and the four preps. It was produced at CBS Television City on October 13th, 1957. And you write just absolutely in detail about the day you got to spend with those folks. Satchmo. Well, you know, it, it, first of all, it was about 12 or 15 minutes from my front door in West Hollywood. I'd gone by the that CBS so many times and dreamed of someday participating in what goes on in there. So when I pulled in and got in there early, as I always do, and scoped the place out and went to my dressing room, uh, I, I mean, when they called and said, you got the Edsel show, uh, we just, it was by the same two agents that got us the Coconut Grove. So with no hit again on the Edsel show, we hadn't had a hit yet. Here we are, literally co-billed at the front of the show with these great legends. Uh, how our agents pulled it off, I don't know, but I got there early, and the thought of meeting Bing Crosby, just, well, having been raised by him and on him, uh, and I heard down the hallway as I had my dressing room, I heard his voice. I couldn't believe it. Bing Crosby had been playing his record. No, wait a minute. I just heard him. That's him. He was a couple of floors up rehearsing and coming to the air shaft, the Whiff and Poof song, because that day with the choir and the band, he was going to pre-record the Whiff and Poof song when he hadn't sung the arrangement in a while. Who's going to fire Bing Crosby? Why is Bing Crosby there early rehearsing? Well, that was the start of my education, Frank Sinatra, and watching all these people operate. But what I was concerned about was when we made our entrance into the room for the first time with all these stars 10 feet away, uh, how are they going to treat us? How do we act? Well, we opened the big double doors of the studio and walked in, and they're all assembled inside. Bing Crosby, by the way, puts us at ease. He says, ah, here come the harmonizers. Used to do a little of that myself. <laughs> you know, rhythm, Delta Rhythm Boys is how he started. Right away we're at ease. Right away we're a peer. We're a colleague. He's kidding. Come on, guys. Come on over. And there's Sinatra flirting with a dancer. You know, I, the whole thing is like right out of uh, whatever, MGM <laughs> musical. And Louis Armstrong, I watched him show up with in gray paint. He had a, a toenail operator on and was... Hurting, but boy, anytime came anybody came near him, he lit up like a bulb and smiled and put on the great performance. Sinatra was finger snapping the whole time and being cool and flirting with chorus girls, and Crosby was sitting over with a golf club in one hand, kind of <laughs> tapping his belly. And <laughs> I said that in the book they remind me of the old hound dog up on the porch with nothing to prove, and the young puppy running around the yard saying, "Hey, look at me, look at me, hey, I'm hot," you know. And and Rosemary Clooney, just the best lady. God ever invented, uh, and we accompanied Lindsey Crosby, uh, Bing's Crosby's son. Can you imagine going through life being Bing Crosby's no. son? No, and when you watch it, you guys, we're going to put the link in our show notes. Lindsey, the boy, seems terrified. Bruce, because, you, you know, you're the coolest prep. All right, you said you didn't know how to dance. You know how to move. Oh, you know you. how to move cool. And it's really abundantly apparent that you should be the guy in the middle and Lindsay should be over there. <laughs> you represented white people well. 
in that TV show. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's funny because my wife gets angry with me. She says, you get up on stage and do everything but the split. You won't go out on the dance floor and dance and be on an anniversary. What gives here? I said, no, I don't, I don't know. I've, I've seen so many guys in the dance floor who look so ridiculous. I don't want to join them. You, you have uh, many, I mean, the, the beauty of this book is, even if you're not interested in harmony groups and uh, the history of all that as we are, and particularly Wheezy, um, you have great little anecdotes. Uh, there are two that I want you to tell. One is meeting Harry Mills after sneaking out of your house, and the other is dragging Ricky Nelson by the nose <laughs> for his first live performance, because he wanted to be a rock and roll star. The only problem is he'd never performed in front of an audience no, before. No. So t tell the Harry Mills story. Well. At uh, 14 or 15, I was enamored with the nightclubs up, in San, up on a Sunset Strip. I had the Trocadero, Cyril's, the Macambo, Interlude, Crescendo. So at night, I rigged my uh, the window in my dressing in my bedroom, which is at the back of our little house, so I could sneak out at night and go two blocks up to Sunset Strip and prowl the nightclubs. And being a little guy with a gift of gab, I'd, you know— Charm my window backstage. I'm show business. I want to be a singer. I live down the street. My dad's a preacher. Come on, oh come on, in. yeah, you know. So one night I worked my way into Cyril's, which I hadn't done. I did some of the others, but Cyril's well, that was the big time. It was crashing the Vatican, you know. <laughs> so I worked my way down the little gangway behind and reach up, and the door's a little bit open, the stage door, and I start to open it, and it slams open, and this 12 foot black man is looking down at me, saying, "What the hell are you doing here?" So my teenage gift of gab kicked in. I said, oh, show business, show business. Oh, okay, okay. He caught on right away. What I was and rolled his eyes and helped me up and said, come on in, you can watch the show. And it's the Mills Brothers. It's the Mills Brothers. I, I'm sure I saw it in the marquee. That's probably why I worked my nerve up and came back, because I saw who it was. And I'm standing around, uh, and he sits me down in a chair, says, you want to watch the show? Oh, God, yeah. And in a minute, Harry Mills walks in. I was surprised he wasn't a foot off the ground walking in, but uh, that's what I would have expected. And he looked at me kind of quizzically, and the stage manager came over and explained my story. He's a kid on the street, wants to be a singer, boom. And Harry came over and said, well, preacher's kid, huh? He shook my hand. He said, yeah, well, that's where we all, all started. And he said, do Lord, oh, do Lord, oh, do remember. I said, oh, God, I'm, no, this is no. I'm going to wake up. Any minute here, and he said he joked around a little bit and said, "Ask me what I wanted to do," and I told him. And he said, "Well, good luck, you know." And then the other brother showed up, and then 15 minutes later, I'm in the wings, <laughs> you know, totally enamored. I'm just wiped out. I, they're so natural. They're so it's a corny word, but they're so lovable because they're so damn good and so natural at it. Nobody's working up there. Nobody's working. Nobody's going to share a song with you. You know, it's just. So I came home that night, and when I get home. The light is on in my father's office next door to our little church. Uh, and it's bungalow. like midnight or something. Midnight. That means my father's gotten up because he's in his office now. He would have had to walk through my bedroom to go out the back door. He knows I'm good. Oh my God, my life is over. I'm grounded for life. When I got back in the house, he had gotten an emergency phone call at the bu at the bungalow, and it was hooked up to the church. So he'd run over the office to take this call, and never even noticed I wasn't in the bed. So, <laughs> that time. <laughs> But the, but the Mills Brothers taught you what you learned from people like Bing Crosby and your interaction with them. There was and and uh, and uh, Jimmy Durante. 
really talented people are comfortable in their own skin and they can treat you like a human being. I love people like that. And not everybody in show business is like that. Henry Winkler is like that. He's so engaging as a personality. He's got all the talent in the world. But when you're with him and talking to him, it's like you're the only person on the planet. I love people like that. You know who else was like that? Interesting, Larry King. Ah. In person, he, he really wanted to know where he went to school, and, you know, it was interesting. You asked me about some other story, too. Oh, the, the Ricky Nelson thing. He had performed on the show, but had never been in a, Well, sure, he performed on the show, essentially lip-synced, of course. Uh, and, and if you uh, sing for a dozen stagehands and extras in the studio, it ain't no big thing. You do that in the den at home. But now we're going to do an assembly. When the preps first began, before we even had a contract, we called every high school and junior high in L.A. and said, we will do a free show for you. We do all the current hits and the crew cuts. and Free, yes, we'll come and do it free. It's clean. Boom, you can call uni high. We did their show. So we used to go and do sh uh, shows around. And this afternoon we had booked a show uh, at a high school on the west side. Hamilton High School. Hamilton High, thank you. And we were loading up uh, on the lot, uh, having given the, been given the afternoon off by Ozzy, who was so great about that. Oh, you got an assembly? Sure, we'll work around. Don't worry. So we're loading up, and Rick came by. We said, come on with us, Rick. He said, oh, he wasn't any shots that day, so we thought he'd come with us. He came with us, grabbed his guitar, and got in the car with us. He never went anywhere without his guitar. And we got over to school, and we did our first two or three numbers, and by then we had a little bit of a reputation, so the kids were very responsive to our first couple of numbers. And then Glenn said, would you like to have us bring out our buddy on stage? He's worth us today, Ricky Nelson, and sing. And I looked off, and Rick, I've never seen panic like that. He, t he took off for the back door. Well, the other two of, three of us, Glenn and... And uh, Ed, I should say, Ed and Marvin, and I jumped, ran over, grabbed him, literally picked him up. He's got one foot dragging on the ground, and he carried him out on stage. Well, when the people, the girls, of course, saw it was, it was actually him. They went crazy. Now, this is in the 50s. Everything yeah, he of, wasn't planning on performing. He was just hanging out with you guys for the out. afternoon. He was hanging out with us for the afternoon. He had no idea we were going to call on him. And when he came out, and he had a funny expression he used to get when when. Think crazy things were happening. His eyes would get real big, and he's got <laughs> looking. And they were screaming. They now the regimented fifties, mind you. All the girls left their seats and ran down to front of the stage, clawing at him, wanting the whole thing. We barely escaped with our lives. They tore our clothes. When we came out in the driveway, Glenn's old beat-up Oldsmobile, which is what we driven over, to escape. There were bodies all over. You couldn't even see the car. And we're trying to work our way in and open the door and get in. And as we get in, we're trying to squeeze out as the you know mob of people in front of us want to, want to stop us. And when, now we get in the car and we're heading home. And usually after a show like that, you're, you're sky high and screaming and yelling. And we are, and we're all screaming and high-fiving and yelling and laughing. And then all of a sudden, we all get kind of silent. And I swear to God, we all kind of reflecting, oh, my God, you know what's happening to our buddy? And then I'd make eye contact with Rick, and he'd break up again. And we'd all break <laughs> up again, and then we'd go, and we'd get silent again. So, you know, there we were in this beat-up old Oldsmobile heading back from Hamilton High, and I'm thinking... Someday Life Magazine is going to make up the expression for this guy. Well, they did. It was Teen Idols when they made yeah. it up for Brick Nelson. And, you know, I watched a couple episodes to get ready for today. And I think what was happening was when you'd go to the movies and you'd see Clark Gable or, you know, any handsome face, it was, it was huge, you know, so you could fall in love with those eyes. But with television, which was pretty new when, when Rick hit, he was in your living room every day, and they had a lot of close-ups on Rick when he was singing. So every girl thought she knew him. That's right. And he was super dreamy. 
and then here he is in person. Like they had an intimate relationship with him that preexisted when you guys showed up at that gym. Oh, I said in the in the book the first time we we on tour we went out and there were thirty five thousand thirty five thousand screaming young women in an arena at the Ohio State Fair. They'd only seen Rick and us on the tube. Now we're breathing the same air as them. Yeah, but we're down right there in the state. Of course, you see the picture at the auditorium or the arena where they were. were these little dots way down on the stage. But yeah, that was uh, he had. And you know, I, I, lately for some reason I've been running across some pictures of him and stuff. He was a terrific musician and singer. He was a very, very, very good guy, a good-looking guy. A good-looking guy. I ever and saw. Ozzy knew how to frame him. I never saw a bad picture of Rick Nelson. He's he's a good-looking guy. Yeah, he was super dreamy, and Ozzy knew. Both my boys are very handsome, but Ozzy knew how to frame him and that he was coming into your living room. Yep. You know. Explain Rick Witt. Oh, he, oh, he was kind of mean. Well, you know, it's interesting. <laughs> I mean, it's something you wouldn't expect from him. He had a great biting sense of humor. Well, I, I emphasize that, though, in the book, that it was never mean-spirited. Uh, Rick didn't know to be, uh, t- to use uh, double entendre. Whatever. He just came out and said what he felt. When you've been raised for your, most of your youth in a bubble where nobody criticizes you and you say what you think. I don't like that man. Oh, you can say that if you want to. Fine. He didn't know any better. And it was never mean-spirited. He never said it because he hated anybody or anything. He just uh, he just had that edgy way of talking about, about things. Uh, I think one time we were walking up to a diner in the area on our lunch break on the show. Wally Cox was on the show, Mr. Peepers. And Wally was such a strange contradiction. He was a buffed shy guy but he was an athlete he was a hell of an athlete which we didn't know what the first day we're walking up to the diner and wally cox runs over and jumps up about four feet off the ground and grabs the vertical pole and lifts his body up perpendicular to it and holds it it's called the flag it's the Mm -hmm. toughest thing a a gymnast can do and we're all this is doctor this is mr peepers doing this and it comes down and rick comes over and says all this time i thought you were just some dumb plain sissy well, you know, he, he he didn't mean it to be mean. He did. It was a compliment to him with, that, with the way he put it. And one time he, I came in on a set Monday morning and he was fuming. I said, what are you so pissed about? He said, I took a girl out the other night on Saturday night. Her curfew is 12. I got her home at 12, 17. Her father's on the front porch. He tore my head off. I said, yeah. He said, you think he'd be honored. I'm Rick Nelson. <laughs> but I think you, I think the way that you present it, it is probably pretty accurate because he was very blunt. Yeah. And everybody was receptive to that. No one ever said, Rick, you know, you could say it a little nicer than that. You could present your thought a little nicer than that. Like, no, <laughs> you're right. No one ever sort of adjusted because he was raised as a as a famous kid. I, I do want to emphasize it was not mean-spirited. Right, uh, right, right. He, if you told him that hurt somebody's feelings, he'd probably be upset and shy, you know, upset about it. But, yeah, he he just said whatever he felt. And then I, I, there's more examples in the book. I won't belabor it. But he was a, a very – and he inherited it from, uh, from Harriet. Harriet had a very edgy sense of humor. And you had a crush on her. Oh, did I have a crush on Harriet? No, I still have a crush on Harriet Nelson. Uh, she was a fabulous woman, but she had a very droll sense of humor, too. In the morning, being a chain smoker, she'd come up the hallway for her makeup call <laughs> you know, with a morning call. We'd say, here comes Harriet. And she'd come in and she'd crush out the cigarette 
and sit down in the chair and say to our makeup man, Monty Westmore, okay, Monty, cover up the sin. <laughs> <laughs> but she reminds me of your mom in spirit. The yes. way you did. Very good. Ah, wow. Very insightful. You're absolutely right. She was the same. Joie de vivre, I'll say what I want, and I'll live like, yeah, wow. Yeah, I think that, wait a minute, is there something, is there something paranormal? No, 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 we're attracted. <laughs> I'm looking at this handsome we face, are, I'm thinking, wow. In romance, we're attracted to what's familiar, if, if it's good familiar. Well, she was wonderful, and I, as I again say in the book, she, she said I would meet her in the hallway where there's just the two of us, and I feel like I was the only man on earth. I was the only person she was interested in talking to. Oh, she'd laugh at my jokes and put her hand and pet me, you know, and give me a wink. Aww. Oh, yeah, I loved her. All right, well, in your book, you painfully and powerfully describe your performance in Columbus on the night that President Kennedy was assassinated, and it's a testament to the moments performers share with audiences and the beauty of that connection. So can you talk about that a little bit for us? Well, uh, like every everyone in the world, that was the night we all remember. And we were due to say, we were in the middle of a college tour when he was assassinated. And uh, so much of our material in college concerts, the irony and sadness of it, uh, in addition to everything else, was so much of it was about him and our respect for him and the Peace Corps and so forth. And we were very much associated with him. In fact, at the time it, his terrible assassination took place, they were talking about us coming to the White House doing a concert because he loved our in-person album. And then we heard it, and we were due to work at Ohio University that night, which is about a two-hour drive from where our hotel was in Columbus. And I was walking down the hallway to get to the uh, parking lot the van, the heads of the concert for a sound check, and I passed our music director's room, and the door was open, and I heard Rocco Cronkite and those words that we'll all remember, These, this word apparently official from Dallas, Texas, the president, and I dropped to my knees, and I had my wardrobe bag and all my, I just, just couldn't believe it, and we all gathered there in the in the room, all the guys in the band and in the preps, and Glenn said, being the spokesman, I better head up to my room and call the dean and let him know we understand, we'll reschedule when things cool down. And he came back in about five minutes with a very quizzical look on his face and said, he has beseeched us, he's begged us to please come ahead and do the show. He said the students would need to be a bomb for what's happening, and he just feels you guys would come, if you came and did it, would mean a lot. And we all kind of, oh, my God, we're just the mess, as you can imagine. So we do an awkward group hug, and we all shuffle up the hallway to the van, and we get in, and for two hours I drive through little towns with, I'm going to have trouble with this one, with women asleep on, uh, on the park bench, I should say, sobbing in each other's arms, and little kids on the street crying, and we think, how are we going to do this? <clears throat> we get to the, the campus, and usually a sound check goes, hey, boom, number four, Mike, over here, move. and just hey, Everybody's talking in muted tones. Everything is extremely subdued. The dean is so relieved to see us. And the student, the college student who was producing it, his very, very first production was a man named Ken Ehrlich, oh my who went on for this 20 or 30 years to produce the Grammys and Emmys. But now he's a suffering college student wondering if his first concert is going to happen. And he welcomes us. And back in the dressing room, nobody said anything. Uh, we just said, you know. This is what we've been asked to do. It's a job that we've asked to have, a profession we've chosen. So let's man up and let's get out and do it. And we went out, and the the crowd was very subdued at first. Uh, and we all the way in on the in the two hour drive in the van, we went through every piece of material, anything, any gesture, any comment that seemed disrespectful or inappropriate. My God, we've got to be so careful. 
And as we began to sing, the crowd began to loosen up, and there were a few gentle chuckles on first of the comedy things. I made fun of Ed's height. I made fun of Glenn's pompadour, things that were safe to joke about. And slowly but, slowly but surely, a unity, an emotional unity with the crowd happened, and we were all going through this together, and we're going to do what we can to help you think of more beautiful things like music. And the last song we picked to do was He's Gone Away, which was a Civil War song sung by a, uh, by a general to a, a, a grieving Confederate widow. He's gone away for to stay a little while. And Marv sings a most beautiful lyrical tenor solo on it. And we, we lean in and start to sing it, and we all realize, oh, my God, these words are so appropriate. These words are so meaningful to all of us. God, what, what would we do without music to express what we're all feeling right now? So we finished, and interestingly enough, which I've always loved the memory of, there was no applause. We finished, we thanked Glenn, said, thank you for a night we'll all remember. And we walked off stage and everybody got up and walked out to a, a, a different world than what had happened this morning. It was like church. And now we got into the dressing room. You could appreciate this. As a, we just fell apart. We're hugging and we're crying and we're sobbing and we're shaking hands. We're making morbid jokes and we're doing everything we can. And in the van on the way back, we usually after a good show, you're all celebrating and and high on the experience, and we just were silent. We were all thinking, you know, everything comes to an end, and uh, Camelot is over, and maybe we begin to think about other ways for the preps to work. Well, for people who are listening to this and not seeing it on YouTube, the most moving thing is the way you're reacting to telling us that story. It's so moving. I can't find my handkerchief. That's you know, okay. I bought it. Uh, um, I'll tell you... Uh, very powerful, Bruce. Th thank you so much for resurrecting that story for us. Oh, you're welcome. Wow. Well, if I may segue, you also write in your book, all of the amazing women with whom we share a marriage will have to deal with what our lives as celebrities <laughs> oh, throw God. at them. Stand by. That's the book I'm writing next. <laughs> so, <laughs> no, no, so can you no. turn a corner and give us a preview uh, of what your wife said. You know, I, I, I made notes about it for years, a book I want to write about a, a preacher's kid in particular and conservative Mormon kids being exposed, if you will, to the proverbial candy store of goodies. And the title I've, I've had for years of work on is Poison Candy. And I don't know if I'll ever write it. Uh, it, it it's, it's, uh, it's a pretty frank one. The second book I have written already, which is going to come out, but I may get the poison candy. But, yeah, I mean, I, being married to an entertainer is a, is a tough job for any person. And, uh, you know, we, uh, we, all, we all finally got I, I said I'm embarrassed to say it, but between the four of us, Marv was always the outlier. He was the t traditional guy. Marv got married once. I was married three times, Glenn was married three times, and Ed was married three times. Each of us on the third time finally got it right. I've been married for 40 years now to the third woman. But yeah, we had our, you know, we had our transgressions, Lord knows. I mean, you can just get so much temptation thrown at you. When the Geisha Girl Review in Tokyo wants to go out on a date, you go, you know. Yeah, we've made you sound like a real heroically beautiful moral man, but you did stalk Marilyn Monroe on a bicycle. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Is that a, you know, it's so funny. 
how, what adolescent fantasies will do. We're, we're 13 years old. What makes us think if we climb on the, ridge, the, the roof of the garage next door to Marilyn Monroe's apartment that she will come home and she will, she will forget to draw the drapes and we'll get to see Marilyn Monroe. We've already seen her naked already on the calendar, but we're going to check the real thing. Never happened. But, you know, from the book, Ed Cobb got to meet her later on. Yeah, you guys were just making sure she was okay. She got yeah. home safely. She, everything okay. Yeah, so uh, there's just so much in the, in this book, and I, I hope everybody grabs it and reads it. It's it's really just a, a beautiful piece of work, and and you remember, and I don't even know if you took notes along. We haven't asked you about your process, if you took notes along the way or what helped jog your memory to help capture all of this for us. Are you asking me now? Yeah, it's just so beautifully detailed. Did you keep a journal? Yeah, everybody says that. I mean, I got friends. I can't remember what I had for breakfast. How do you remember <laughs> a color shirt Gene Kelly had on? <laughs> well, you know, I don't. Also, I will say, in all, all honesty, and it's it, a writer's license. I like to think. I have hanging over my computer when I write every day uh, an expression that was actually given by a public speaker, but I changed one word of it. It says, "It's a pretty poor writer that can't tell a story better than it happened." Oh, and Mark Twain always said, "Never let the truth get in the way of a good story." Of a good story, yes, God, good old Mark. We're back to Mark. <laughs> uh, just brilliant. Well, that's a wonderful note to end on. I'm going to read our closing credits. People, you can find the book. Oh, by the way, BruceBellin.com. Your website is tricked out. There is so much great stuff on there, including lots of YouTube videos, links to all kinds of stuff that he's talking about in the book. You you can toggle back and forth between the Kindle of the book which you can watch on your computer and the website to watch what he's just described. It's really a lot of fun, and it's how I spent my past week. Here come your closing credits. Thank you so much for joining us. We would love to continue this conversation with you on Instagram and Twitter, where we are at MediaPathPod, and on Facebook, where our show page is MediaPathPodcast, and our Facebook group is MediaPath with Fritz and Wheezy Podcast Community. You can find full video podcast episodes loaded with bonus visual content on our YouTube channel, MediaPathPodcast. You can write to us at MediaPathPodcast at gmail.com. Com. And if you enjoy the show, please give us a nice rating in Apple Podcasts, subscribe to our YouTube channel, and talk about us with your friends at brunch and on social media. You can sign up for our spicy little newsletter at mediapathpodcast.com. We want to thank our wonderful guest and friend of the show, Bruce Belland. Our team includes producer Dina Friedman, John Maddox, Bill Filipiak, Thomas Hubble, Mason Brown, Lori DeWall, Garrett Arch, Chris Baldwin, Jordan Reyes, and you. Our theme music is by me and John Maddox. I am Louise Planker here with Fritz Coleman. Be well and wise, and we will see you along the media path.